I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those of us uh, here at Center Campus, as well as those joining us from our campus in Beerspa, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. I also want to welcome those who are watching us online. Uh, let me share some personal good news with all of you before I uh, get into today's message. Uh, many of you know that I've been pursuing my doctoral studies through Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky. I did a sermon series here in our church last year called Revive Us Again, and that was connected to my doctoral dissertation. And I want to express my sincere thanks to those of you who participated in the research for your time commitment towards that project. And I'm happy to let you know that I successfully graduated with a Doctor of Ministry degree on May 20th. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. You know, my family joined me on this uh, special occasion. So it was such a blessing to have my wife and our kids at the graduation. And I want to convey my thanks to our church, to Pastor Henry, and to our leadership for all your support, for being flexible and giving me the time that I needed to study the last three, three and a half years. And I want to thank our Lord for all of his help in uh, juggling between ministry and family responsibilities. It was an incredibly busy season, but I have so much to be grateful for, and I celebrate God's goodness and faithfulness in our lives. Our two youngest kids were having a conversation the other day. The six-year-old said to the seven-year-old, Dad is now a doctor. <laughs> the seven-year-old responded, Yes, but he's not like the doctor who helps people. So I get it. I'm a doctor who doesn't help people. <laughs> this weekend, we will continue our sermon series from the book of Exodus. And we come to an important part of the book, a section that has been valued highly by both the Jewish and the Christian community. Uh, this may be the most well-known portion in the entire Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. As the Israelite community stood at the foot of Mount Sinai, God himself spoke to them in an audible voice, and they heard these commandments given to them by God. That's how special this is. There is no questioning its source and authority. The Ten Commandments were meant to govern the nation of Israel as they lived under God. It served as a, a moral compass, it outlined Israel's responsibilities towards God and towards one another. The nations that were surrounding Israel had various gods, and yet these gods were so unpredictable. The people had no understanding of what would satisfy the, those gods and what would make them angry. So they lived in constant fear. But the Ten Commandments revealed to Israel what the one true God required of them. And let me now dispel a myth that has been widely held even among some Christians. People assume in the Old Testament, salvation was by works. The people were working hard to keep the Ten Commandments and all of the detailed laws and rules and regulations. Whereas in the New Testament, we see salvation by grace through faith. That 
is simply a false dichotomy. Salvation is by grace, both in the Old and the New Testament. There is no work-based salvation taught in the Bible, period. Even before we go into the Ten Commandments, this is what the Lord says in Exodus chapter 20. This just precedes the first commandment and serves as the preamble to the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Here is God speaking, Yahweh, the one who has acted on behalf of his people by saving them from bondage in Egypt. The nation of Israel, were, they were in chains, languishing in darkness under the iron hand of Pharaoh, treated with no dignity, exploited and taken advantage of. God saw their misery and he set his people free. He called them to himself. He made a covenant with them. They became God's people, a nation that was set apart for God. Now, all of this happened before the giving of the Ten Commandments, before the giving of the law. They already had a relationship with God, which was nothing but an expression of His grace. Israel didn't do anything to earn God's favor. Redemption came first, and then comes right behavior. The law was not given so that the people would be saved by observing the law. No. The law was given because they were saved. Because they were the redeemed community of God's people. Now that they had a relationship with God, they were to live differently from the rest of the world. That's why the law was given. This is the gospel. Grace precedes everything. We are saved by grace. We receive new life. And then we are called to a life of obedience and to live according to God's word. So Israel, observing the Ten Commandments, was a response to all that the Lord had done for them. And that principle is true today. We are saved by grace. Because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we cannot earn our salvation through our good works. But the Christian life of obedience is a response to what the Lord has done for us. We are called to a higher standard of life. That doesn't precede our salvation, but it follows our salvation. The Ten Commandments offered a way of life by which people can honor God and honor one another. The Ten Commandments are still relevant and applicable for us today. The first four commandments are about honoring God, and the next six are about honoring one another. So today we'll focus on the first four commandments. Our text is from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 11. And if you're physically able, I'll ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 11. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of 
anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Would you pray with me? Father, we recognize the inspiration of your word. We recognize these Ten Commandments were given by you for each one of us, that they do govern our relationship with you and our relationship with one another and have such relevance for our time. So would you speak to us now as we understand these commandments and apply them to our lives? Would you, by the power of your Spirit, take these truths deep into our hearts and bring transformation within us? So we commit this time to you, Lord, Minister to us in the power of your spirit. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. An article on CNN reported about two atheists who wanted to rewrite the Ten Commandments. The article began with this question. What if, instead of climbing Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God, Moses had turned to the Israelites and had asked, hey, what do you guys think we should do? The two atheists announced a contest that offered a prize money of $10,000. The contestants had to come up with modern alternatives to the Ten Commandments. Now, here are some things that people came up with, what they called as part of the new Ten Commandments. Be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. The scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Every person has the right to control of their body. A God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. There is no one right way to live. And on and on, these commandments went. It is unfortunate that these new commandments perfectly describe the culture that we live in and the world around us. We are so open-minded that our brains have fallen out. There are no absolute truths. No right way of living. 
God is not necessary. We have control over our body. We can do whatever we want. And the end result is the mess that we are in today. You watch the news every day and you see the consequences of living apart from God. Centuries ago, God gave the Ten Commandments. and You can write them all on a single sheet of paper. This was the summary of all of the laws. And if Israel were to abide by these Ten Commandments, their life will be orderly. They will have a great relationship with God and they will have a great relationship with one another. The Ten Commandments offer a a solid foundational framework for any society to thrive. You cannot improvise on these commandments. And these are not just a, a bunch of rigid rules, a list of no's. The boundaries that are offered in the Ten Commandments was meant to free the people not restrict them. God didn't give the commandments to keep people from enjoying life. It is the exact opposite. And that is true today. When we live by the Ten Commandments and take those commandments seriously, we will have an orderly society that will thrive and flourish in every area of life. They offer a way for us to love God and love one another. So the Ten Commandments are not some outdated, ancient, archaic stuff. They are very much relevant in our day and age. So this weekend, let's look at the first four commandments that have to do with honoring God. Here's here's how the first commandment opens up in Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. The Ten Commandments may be framed negatively, but it has a positive function. Israel had been freed from slavery. The Ten Commandments offered them a way to continue walking in that freedom. So even when they settled in the new promised land, they could still live life to the full and experience the abundant life that God had as they abide by these boundaries. And it all starts with your relationship with God. That is why the first commandment calls for total allegiance. You shall have no other gods before me. In the polytheistic culture of Canaan, the land where the Israelites were going to settle, the inhabitants of the land worshipped multiple gods. That was the norm. A nation may have an allegiance to a particular god, But they also had some backup gods just in case the primary god doesn't come through. But Yahweh, the God of Israel, would not settle for such compromise. He commands exclusive allegiance. God is saying, I am the one who set you free. Now you live for me alone. No other god could receive Israel's worship because no other god was worthy of it. The one true God had done such mighty things on behalf of his people. This was unparalleled, unprecedented, unheard of. God fought on their behalf and routed all their enemies. He carried them on eagle's wings. And now he claimed their devotion and worship. As we apply the first commandment for today, this goes 
against the face of atheism, which denies the existence of God, and pluralism, which says there are many roads to God. God does exist. He is alive and well. He created all things. He sustains all things. We are not a product of a chance or an accident, but God knit us together in our mother's womb. And he created us to worship him. And in worshiping him, we find meaning and purpose in life. And in the midst of the plethora of religious options, the Christian faith stands exclusive. Jesus makes it clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The first commandment serves as a reminder. Our worship and allegiance is to the Lord, and they cannot be compromised. Loyalty to God is the foundation to the Ten Commandments. Now let's look at the second commandment which is somewhat related to the first. You can almost call it a part B. Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6, it says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You know, the word for idol means an object, like a, a statue carved out of metal, wood, or stone. It is a physical image that represents God. You know, in the ancient Middle East, no other religion prohibited idol worship. It was normal for the gods of other religions to have human-made objects that represented them. And I grew up in a culture like that in India. Wherever you turn, you will see physical idols of the gods and goddesses of Hinduism. But that is unacceptable with the one true God. There are two prohibitions here in the second commandment. The Israelites cannot make anything that would serve as a physical image or representation of God. And secondly, they are not to bow down or worship those images. No gesture of respect or adoration should be given to those images. Why such prohibition? Any image made to represent God is a work of human imagination. A human being uses their whims and fancies to decide what God looks like. And in doing so, they equate God to a created being. And when we create God in our image, it is an idol. Not a reflection of the one true God as revealed in the scripture. Now some of us may think, I don't make any physical objects that look like God. And I'm not tempted to worship any of them, so I'm good. I keep the second commandment. Well, here's something you need to know. Idolatry is primarily about misplaced love and misplaced trust. We may not worship a physical idol, but if we love something more than God or we trust in something else to save us, 
that can become an idol in our life. For instance, the Apostle Paul calls the love of money or covetousness as idolatry. Paul writes in Colossians 3, verse 5, Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshipping the things of this world. Now the second commandment says God is a jealous God. And that may be a description of God that may make some of us uncomfortable. The Hebrew word used there to refer to God as jealous has a very different connotation than how we use the word jealous today. It's the same word used to refer to the feelings of a husband or wife whose trust has been betrayed by their spouse. A commitment between a husband and a wife is exclusive. That's what makes marriage so different from all other human relationships. A husband and wife have total allegiance to one another. It cannot be shared. I don't know of a sensible husband who believes that it's a good idea for his wife to share her love with other men. I don't know of a wife who would tolerate her husband flirting with many women. In the same way, when Israel realized all that God had done for them, they would pledge their loyalty and allegiance to God alone. A God who keeps his covenant, who loves his people deeply, will not allow them to love something else more than him. To be committed to something else more than him. To trust in something else more than him. So the second commandment calls us to love and trust God above all things and not succumb to idol worship. Now let's go to the third commandment, verse 7 of our text. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Commonly, people have assumed that this commandment is about using God's name as a swear word, using his name disrespectfully in a context where it doesn't belong, or even using the name of Jesus or God as an expression of surprise. Now, I hate it when people use the name of God or the name of Jesus in a conversation where it doesn't belong. When TV show hosts use the name of Jesus flippantly or to ridicule something, my blood boils. There is a a righteous indignation that stirs from within. And having said that, I don't think the third commandment is just about people using the name of God in a profane manner. That's not the emphasis here. There's so much more involved in the third commandment. What exactly is being prohibited here in the third commandment? Put this, first of all, in context. God's desire in the book of Exodus was to make his name known to all the nations of the world. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, It says, but I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power, and that my name might be proclaimed 
and all the earth. God's universal goal is for people to come to know his name. For his name symbolizes his character, his nature, his promises, what he stands for. All of that is crystallized in God's name. Anything that damages the name of God hinders God's universal goal of making himself known. Now, in the Old Testament, who bore the name of God? Who carried his name? It's God's people, the Israelites, because they were the people of God, the nation that God had set apart for himself. They bore his name, and the surrounding nations associated the people of Israel with Yahweh, their God. So if Israel tarnished God's name, his reputation, because of their lifestyle, then the nations that are surrounding and they are watching, they will despise God as a result of that. Do you get that? Misusing God's name is the same as misrepresenting God's name. Taking the name of God in vain means bearing the name of God in vain. The word for vain is translated as worthless, evil. It's associated with troublemaking intentions. So when Israel bore God's name but lived a life that defiled the name of God, their mission was at stake. The nations around them will fail to revere God because of Israel. They will be a bad advertisement. Now put that in today's context. The ones who are guilty of breaking the third commandment may not be a non-Christian who even swears in the name of God. For they don't have a relationship with God in the first place. They don't represent Him and therefore they cannot tarnish His image. No one will think less of God because of a non-Christian's lifestyle. But we who call ourselves as God's people, who bear His name, who represent God to others, we ought to take the third commandment seriously because it is intended for us. The command not to take God's name in vain is addressing the problem of hypocrisy. When we poorly reflect God by way of our lifestyle, when we, by the way we live our life, our character, bring disrepute to the name of God, others around us think less of God because of the way we live, that their perception of God is negative because of how we have represented Him, then our mission is at stake and we are guilty of breaking the third commandment. So the third commandment is spoken primarily to us believers who bear the name of God. Now let's look at the fourth commandment. Verses 8 to 11 of our text in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your towns. 
For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Sabbath was a unique Israelite institution that was unknown to the cultures surrounding them. The reason Israel was called to observe the Sabbath was this is a principle modeled by God himself. He created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh day. There is an order in creation and God has set rhythms within that. It's a picture of the world that God intended it to be. A Sabbath and rest is a gift from God for us. As finite beings, our bodies need rest. So this pattern of six days of work and one day set apart for rest and worship is built into the very core of our being. When we disregard this rhythm, we will pay the consequences for that. Now there's yet another motivation to observe the Sabbath, and that's pointed out in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15. It says there, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. In Egypt, where the Israelites lived as slaves, they never had a day off. Pharaoh was such a hard taskmaster that he never gave them a vacation. But now the Israelites could finally take a day off and cease from labor because they were no longer under Pharaoh, but they were serving a new master who is gracious and compassionate. And when it comes to slaves, all that mattered was their productivity. And not so when it comes to children. The Israelites mattered to God even on a day they didn't work. Even when they were sitting around doing nothing, that didn't affect their worth. They were precious and valuable in the eyes of God. And as we apply this today, it is important for us to learn this rhythm of setting apart a day for rest, remembrance, and worship. The New Testament is not legalistic about the specific day that we need to set apart, but the principle of Sabbath still remains. It is a gift from God. Someone said, Sabbath rest is a call to Sabbath trust. When we observe the Sabbath and cease from work, we are visibly demonstrating our trust in God. We give up our desire to be in control. We surrender this false notion that life is all about us and the onus is on us. We place our trust in God as opposed to our own abilities and gifts and talents. And we choose to refrain from work. And Sabbath is not just about refraining from activity. It is refraining from activity so that we have the time for the most essential things of life. Sabbath frees us so we can focus on what is most important, our relationship with God, our relationship with our family, and self-care. 
So as we summarize the first four commandments, we see that it's all about honoring God. It's about our vertical relationship. If our relationship with God is fractured, then we will be like broken cisterns. We cannot hold water. But when our relationship with God is strong, then we truly have the capacity to experience life abundant and full. So honoring God means we give Him total allegiance. We worship Him alone. We represent Him rightly to those who are around us. And we cultivate time in our schedule to strengthen our walk with Him. Let me close with this. Julia Sweeney is an actress and writer best known for her four-year run on Saturday Night Live and her solo shows. And Julia is an atheist. And a monologue that she produced titled, Letting Go of God, she raises a common problem for contemporary atheists. Why does God want or even seem to need our praise? So in this monologue, she raises this objection with these words. I'm living my life as a person who accepts the natural world. The whole idea that there is a God who cares whether people believe in him or not. Like, why would God care if people believed in him? She says, that was one of the many things that I found so shocking reading the Bible. First of all, how insecure God is. I mean, God is so insecure, he needs everyone to say, you're the number one. You're the number one over all other gods. You're the top God. And he is like the most insecure character in the world. Now contrast Ms. Sweeney's views with this powerful quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. And commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. So that is the difference in perspective between a Christian believer and a non-believer. It is a stark difference. The Christian believer knows God doesn't demand our praise because he is insecure. But he is inviting us to enjoy him. So as we 
wrap our service today. We're going to delight in the Lord by celebrating the Lord's Supper. We take delight in God because He is our Savior. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of His righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. We delight in our God. We glorify Him. We know that He is greater than all other gods because He has crowned us with His salvation. No other God can save. Only the living God, the one true God, can rescue us from the power of sin. And this great and mighty God humbled Himself and took on a human form through the incarnation of Christ. He suffered and He died for our sins and He removed our transgressions. He clothed us with His salvation, His robe of righteousness over us. The Bible says God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. So we take time now to remember, to give thanks, and to express our delight in God and glorify Him through the partaking of these elements. You know, the communion elements that we have here, the bread and the cup, these are powerful spiritual symbols. It speaks of the, the body of Jesus that was given for us and the blood of Jesus that was shed for the remission of our sins. So as we partake of these elements, is an expression of our worship and adoration. This is not a, a sad or a somber meal. But truly, we express our delight as we commune with the Lord and encounter Him afresh. As we partake of these elements, we declare to the world around us, we are a forgiven community and there is no God like ours. That's why this meal is reserved only for those who have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus as our Savior. At this time, I'm going to hand it to our campus pastors to partake of the elements in your campuses. And here at Central Campus, let's take time to close our eyes for a moment, to quieten our hearts, reflect on what you heard. Picture this. God has clothed you with His salvation. He has robed you in His righteousness. Your standing in Christ is perfect. So let those words sink in our hearts as we prepare ourselves to partake of the elements meaningfully.
Father, we thank you for the garment of salvation that you have placed over us. That we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ because of what he has done on our behalf. We are washed in the blood of Jesus. We are cleansed. And we stand before you, your throne of grace, with confidence as your children bought by the blood of Jesus. There is truly no one like you. And we express our delight in you, our gratitude for all that you have done. We lift up your name on high. Amen.